Merry Christmas, Christ Church. So I uh, just wanted to share this with you. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been putting together a little gift that we wanted to give you tonight. And it's a little devotional guide called Abide. And the subtitle is Practicing the Presence of God. And so we have this as a gift for you. You'll find them uh, after our time together here. We're going to go out and sing together with candlelight out on the steps. And out there in various places, you'll see uh, these books on a uh, little tables, and you can go and just grab one and take one. So it is our gift to you, and it goes along actually with a series that we're going to be launching in the new year on January 8th uh, called Abide, Practicing the Presence of God. So go ahead and grab one of those uh, before you leave tonight. So I know... um, Many of you, after our time here, are going to go to various and sundry uh, Christmas gatherings at homes, right? Yes? And, um, and, and you'll be wanting maybe uh, a little icebreaker for the group. You know, sometimes if you're around family members, especially that are a little bit challenging, uh, you know who you are. And... Um, uh, or, you know, just a little, you know, you haven't seen each other in a while. You, you might want a little icebreaker. And so uh, let me just suggest this to you. Um, I was thinking about this this week, that a fun thing to do would be to have everyone in the group go around and share maybe a recent kind of very specific uh, Christmas joy that you've experienced over the last few weeks. And then uh, also a, invite the group to share a non-political Christmas rant. And so um, I'm looking at my brother-in-law right now, Ed. It's a non-political Christmas rant, Ed. And, um, and, and so I thought I would model what you might want to do by just sharing with you uh, my own uh, Christmas rant as well as my Christmas joy. So my Christmas rant this year, uh, last night actually we were on Disney Plus looking around for a good Christmas movie to watch, maybe one we hadn't seen in a while. And as I was looking through Disney Plus, I came across this, uh, this special, the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. And I just thought to myself, what is Marvel doing? You know, they already blew it with the multiverse. It's like now they can do just about anything. And then they're going to do this now. They're going to step into the genre of Christmas movies. Really, Avengers, you know, stay out of Christmas. Has anybody seen this? Who are you who saw that? Yes, Jonathan and Wisdom, I knew it. So my Christmas joy, though, is, uh, you know, as I was looking around, um, we, we couldn't find anything new, and so we just watched Home Alone last night. And so my Christmas joy was noticing just how similar Macaulay Culkin looks to Ryan and Natalie Wiley, that's our worship director, worship directors, their son Stone, and just see, isn't that, <laughs> isn't that just adorable? Like, have you ever seen anything so cute? I feel like they need to remake it, and Stone will be a better... He'll he'll be better at the role. So tonight, just as we reflect together a little bit on the Christmas story, I want to draw your attention to a a little phrase uh, that is found in in the passage of kind of that that really iconic story of when the angels appear to the shepherds out in the fields as they watch their flocks by night. And you remember it said this, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. 
Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And then, and then this. He says, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. He says, this will be a sign for you. And, and I want to talk to you just for a few minutes tonight about that little word, sign. He says, this will be a sign to you. Now, think for a minute, what is a sign anyway? You know, a sign is usually something unusual or spectacular or something dramatic that points to something beyond itself, right? And, and in the Bible, there are signs. And so, for example, in the Old Testament story, the Exodus, uh, F- Moses throws down his staff onto the ground before Pharaoh. It turns into a snake to be a sign to Pharaoh that Moses is speaking to him on behalf of God. And then uh, a little bit later in the Gospels, the Pharisees ask for a sign. And what are they asking for? Something spectacular and unusual that might prove that Jesus is who he said he is. And a little bit later in the Gospels, Jesus talks about the signs of his coming. And so a sign is usually something unusual and spectacular that points to something beyond itself. And here, out on these, uh, these, the, the plains that the shepherds are watching their flocks by night, he says, this will be a sign for you. And I, I was reading this, and I thought, well, you, know, you would think that a, a choir of, of angel armies in the night sky would be sign enough, wouldn't you? And yet, and yet here he says, no, this is the sign. But what is the sign? The sign is that you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And we wonder, what kind of sign is that? And what is it a sign pointing to? And what are we to learn about that sign from, or about Christmas from that sign tonight? And I want us to explore that question just for a few minutes together. But before we do that, what we need to do is we just need to kind of jump back into the story once again. So the story begins, of course, with Joseph taking his very pregnant wife, Mary, on a long journey. And listen to what it says in the text. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth to the Galilee, to Judea, or from Galilee, or from Nazareth, Galilee to Judea. You try reading all of these names up here. It's not easy. (laughs) To Bethlehem to the city of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And so the story begins with Joseph taking a long journey from Bethlehem or from Nazareth in the north all the way down to Bethlehem. And uh, according to Google Maps, uh, this is a uh, a two and a half hour journey. If you do take toll roads, I understand you can get there in an hour and 49 minutes. That's the fastest route. But of course, Mary and Joseph are not driving in car. Uh, they're driving by donkey or foot, maybe. And so this is a very, very long, arduous journey, 90 miles through vast expanses of hot deserts. Uh, it's dangerous. Uh, bandits are not uncommon. Robberies are frequent. And, and you just ask yourself, what on earth is Joseph doing taking a 90-mile journey with his wife, his pregnant wife, through the deserts uh, at this time of year? Like, what on earth is he doing? Why would, it, why would any husband in their right mind take their very pregnant wife on a 90-mile foot or donkey journey through deserts. Not a good idea, right? Why would he do this? Well, of course, he is not doing this by choice. 
He is doing this because the text tells us that a decree went out in those days from Caesar Augustus that, this, that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, a, a brief word on the Greco-Roman world in which Jesus was born. So uh, the, the Greco-Roman world in which Jesus was born was an incredibly aristocratic, hierarchical kind of culture. And uh, the culture sort of looked something like this. At the very top of the social status ladder was Caesar. Uh, he was believed to be the very embodiment of God, the son of God, he was called. It was written on their coins. He was at the very top. And just below Caesar, or maybe a bit below Caesar, were the nobles. These were the wealthy landowners who maybe played a role in the Senate the Senate, so they had some political clout and power. Uh, below them uh, were citizens of Rome, and citizens of Rome had, uh, they, they had, they had a certain amount of rights over their own body. And so, for example, a Roman citizen could never be crucified. Uh, in fact, they couldn't even be executed. And, and so Roman citizens had a certain degree of rights, but below them, kind of below the citizens, uh, were what you might call the disposables in the Roman Empire. And these were the people that had no real rights. Uh, their lives were basically at the mercy of those who ruled them. And they were the ones whose lives were being pressed upon by the thumbprint of imperial Rome. And so below the citizens were the peasants and the slave class. And then below them uh, would be the disgraced peasants and slave class. And so, for example, if you were a peasant and let's say you were pregnant out of wedlock, you wouldn't just have the, the problem of being a peasant without any power. You would also be disgraced and shamed within your culture. But then even below that, at the very bottom rung of the social ladder within uh, the Roman world, within the Roman imagination, were the crucified ones. A crucifixion was not just a painful death, it was a shameful death. It was the way you publicly shamed people. And so it was the way you would exert maximal embarrassment and shame upon an individual. They would be at the very, very bottom, very dregs of society. And so the reason why Joseph and Mary have to go from Nazareth down to Bethlehem is because the imperial power of their day and the ruler of that power, namely Caesar, wanted to get a census for his tax base, the very tax base that he is going to exact money so that he can further fund his military that then oppresses the very same people that are funding his tax base. And uh, so the text says that he goes down to, or that Mary and Joseph go down to Bethlehem. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, in, in our reading tonight and in popular imagination, we often imagine uh, Joseph and Mary coming into Bethlehem and they're banging on the doors of uh, the, the hotels and Mary is close to going into labor. Maybe she's going into labor and they're frantically looking for a place to go. And, um, and, and they go, can I, can I have a place here? And there's some mean innkeeper that says, no, there's no place for you here. No place for you, no place, you know. And again, they get their, their, the door shut in their faces. And so they wind up in a tumble down uh, uh, stable. stable. Thank you, Robert. This is a answer when there's a fill-in-the-blank moment in the sermon. 
Now, that may be how it played out, but uh, this is the NIV translation, and uh, they actually translate that word in as guest quarters. And what, what many people believe is that um, Mary and Joseph coming into Bethlehem, which was uh, Joseph's uh, ancestral home, he goes there, and naturally, in the ancient world, uh, you were expected to show hospitality. So if you had a family member that was pregnant, of course, you would put them up in their house. But of course, they weren't the only ones that were coming into town because there was a census. And so uh, the little village home where they tried to stay, uh, there was no room upstairs in the guest quarters. Uh, in fact, um, little, why not look at some pictures of peasant homes in the first century? So this is uh, one kind of rendering. Uh, inside the peasant home, they had an upstairs quarters where the families would sleep, oftentimes pretty crowded in. If you've ever been to one of the developing world countries and you visited really impoverished places, you oftentimes find multiple family members being forced to live in one roof with very small living space. And this was the ancient world, little quarters. They would live upstairs kind of crowded together. And then when guests would come in, they would oftentimes be given a little spot on the right over there in the guest quarters. And if there were no room for the guests guest upstairs, then they would need to go downstairs where the work of the family would often take place and was oftentimes where the animals would be stored in the night. You'd bring them in to protect them from the, uh, you know, maybe theft or also to provide warmth for the family. I know some of you, you like to sleep with your animals at night. Some of you even have your dog sleep on be- in the bed with you. That's gross. <laughs> but... Um, They'd bring them in. And so it's likely the case that Mary and Joseph indeed were put downstairs with livestock. And um, this is a a manger from the first century that was uncovered and probably laid the the baby Jesus in an environment like this or in a manger like this. Now, what, what we should probably imagine at this moment when we think about that first Christmas morning is Mary and Joseph arriving in a crowded house where they can't really find a proper place to stay. They have to sleep downstairs, uh, get a makeshift bed. And then Mary ends up giving birth to her child downstairs in a very unsanitary, unsafe, dirty, crowded place. And this was the first Christmas. Now, I think for most of us, When we think like, could you imagine needing to give birth in an environment like that? I mean, just in living quarters so crowded with all of second cousins and aunts and uncles in such close, you want privacy, right? And you want sanitation and you want safety and maybe even a nurse or a doctor around, right? And so most of us, we think, gosh, if we had to give birth in an environment like this, like that sounds like a nightmare, right? I mean, it would only be only as a result of the most unusual, the most unfortunate, the most catastrophic of circumstances that you would ever want to give birth in a place like that. And uh, I I can remember back when uh, my second daughter, Mia, came into the world. uh, She came a lot quicker than our oldest daughter. And so Alicia and I were laboring, or Alicia was laboring at home. I was (laughs) with her. 
we're actually at my mother and father-in-law's house, and it was, I think it was my mother-in-law's birthday, and uh, Alicia didn't want to disturb the family celebration, so she was quietly laboring at the house, because she is tough, that woman, a woman of steel. And, um, and, and all of a sudden, though, the, the contractions started coming quick and quick and quick and quick, and then Alicia just looks at me, she's like, I think we need to go to the hospital now. And so we hop in uh, the 1982 Mercedes diesel, which does not drive fast. My mother-in-law is driving, and she was driving very fast. And, uh, and I was sitting in the passenger seat. And then while we were en route to the hospital, Alicia said, Josh, I'm starting to go into transition. My body is starting to push the baby. The bo- my body is pushing. I don't want to have the baby in the car. I don't want to have the baby in the car. And I jumped in the back seat. And we had been doing Bradley Method, which is husband coached childbirth. And so I jumped in the back seat. I said, don't worry, honey. Coach is here. And, uh, and she slapped me. No, that, none of that happened. I actually jumped in the back seat. And I was terrified. I was cowering in the corner. And I didn't know what to do. And, and we got to the hospital. And just 20 minutes after getting in there, we had pushed, or she had we, It's a joint effort, you know? Mia into the world. But, you know, we think only in the most unfortunate set of circumstances would we ever want to give birth in such a unprivate, unsanitary, vulnerable, unsafe, and dirty kind of place, right? And we just think, oh, that would be a nightmare. But you know what the shepherds thought when they heard this? They didn't think that would be a nightmare. They thought, that's just like where I was born. I... I was born in a peasant home. I was born on dirt floors. I was born in an unsafe, unsanitary, uh, very unprivate kind of place. I was wrapped up and laying in a manger. Who is this king? What kind of king is this? He has come into the world to do. Who is this? And the angel says, this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, what kind of sign is this? What does this sign point us to anyway? If this is a sign to you, it's a sign of what? You know, there's a lot of symbols, you could say, signs surrounding Christmas. And, and they're symbols that point to something beyond themselves. We have our Christmas lights that point us to the light of the world that has come in to drive out the darkness. We have our Christmas trees that are green, and they, they are to remind us of the life that Jesus has come into the world to bring. We have our gift giving, which is to remind us of the generosity and the kindness and the largesse of the Father's love that gave so much for us. What is the manger a sign pointing us to? And I want to suggest that this manger is a sign that's pointing us to the revolutionary kingdom of God, the kingdom that is broken into this world in the person of Jesus. You know, Mary, after she heard the news of the birth or that she was going to give birth to this child, she broke out in song. She pinned a song. It's the first Christmas song, you could even say it was probably the first punk rock song because Mary in this song was raging against the machine. She was sticking it to the man. And here's what she said in her song. 
She said, what is happening with the birth of this new king in, the, in this world? He says, he has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And he has exalted those of humble estate which is essentially to say that those who find their identity and their worth in their resume, in their job, in their accolades, in their religious practice, in their theological knowledge and how well they know the Bible, and this makes me superior, those who find their identity in their arrogant assessment of everything that's wrong with the world, their politics and all of this stuff, he says those are being brought down and humbled. In my kingdom, I'm taking that ladder that has Caesar on the top, and I'm completely knocking it on its side, and I'm leveling the playing field. And in my kingdom, those who are depressed by their lack of achievements and their money and their wealth and their position and their failures and their past and their brokenness, he says, I have come to exalt and to lift up. He says to those shepherds, I have come to be in solidarity with you. I have come among the discarded. I have come to stand with the demonized so that the demonizing might stop. I have come to live among the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. I am here to stand with ones whose dignity has been denied, whose burdens are greater than they can bear, and I have come to lift them up. And listen, wherever this message Wherever this message and whenever the truth of this message has broken into this world, it has revolutionized the way humans are viewed and treated and spoken about and cared for. You know, this is true for human history and throughout Western history. The emergence of orphanages and hospitals and educational facilities, so much of it has come out of the generative source that is the first Christmas. This idea that there is not a group of people that should be cared for and another group that can be discarded and ignored and invisible, but all have been exalted, all have been lifted up. And so wherever this message had gone, the, the plight of women and the poor and those on the margins and slaves has been lifted. Whenever Christianity has been true to itself. Of course, Christianity has not always been true to itself, has it? And too much of the church's history has told a different story. But not only is it true that wherever this message breaks in, it has the power to change the way people are viewed and treated. Listen, wherever this message of the revolutionary kingdom of God takes seed in your life, it can revolutionize the way you view and you treat and you care for others. Listen, Jesus has come into this world in this unique particular kind of way to humanize the plight of all kinds of people. To say, I have come to stand with you. I have come to walk beside you. I have come to bear your burden. I have come to bear your shame. I have come to take your sin. I have come to bring forgiveness and freedom. I have come into this world for you so that those who are humble might be lifted up. And when you view the human race through that lens, when you view your neighbors through that lens, when you view people on the other side of the political aisle through that lens, when you view broken relationships within the home through that lens, it can revolutionize and, and reorient you. And I can say, look, God broke into this world 
with tremendous compassion and care and mercy and solidarity and empathy for all kinds of people from all various and sundry places. And so how dare you and I do anything otherwise than that? You know, the kingdoms of this world, this old way of structuring reality is passing away and a new reality, an eternal reality, the kingdom of God has broken into this world in the birth of Jesus on the first Christmas. So whenever this message of the revolutionary kingdom of God takes seed in your life, it can revolutionize the way you view and treat and care for others, but not only others, it can revolutionize the way you view and treat yourself. You know, some of us have a negative voice in our head that keeps speaking those negative messages over us. There's that phrase in the song we just sang, Oh Holy Night, it says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I've never thought about that phrase until this Christmas. The soul felt its worth. You know, how do you know how much something is worth? Like, you know, if you were to say, like, how much is my house worth? How much is my car worth? You know the answer to that question? Whatever anyone is willing to pay for it, that's what it's worth. What is the human race worth to God? Whatever he is willing to pay for it. And what God was willing to do was to move heaven and earth and to give his self and giving his own son because of his extravagant, eternal, and infinite love for the world. And listen, the best thing you could ever do this Christmas is to open your heart and your life up and receive that love. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you again this Christmas. With wonder and awe at the mystery of the incarnation. Father, not just that you sent your son into the world, but the unique and the particular and the specific and the shocking way in which you chose to send your son into this world to be among the disenfranchised and the discarded and the disinherited so that you might reorient all of reality around a new kingdom, a new way of being in this world. And Father, we pray that you would enable us afresh this Christmas to go out and be witnesses of this revolutionary kingdom that has broken into the world. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.